This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, December 29th, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. Conservation with at least a nod toward respecting landowners and other private sector participants poses a challenge. So what's the best way to align incentives for people who have the power to enhance conservation, but perhaps not quite reason enough to do so? Brian Yablonski is chief executive officer of the Property and Environment Research Center. We spoke earlier this year. When we talk about conservation, and uh, trying to preserve lands and wildlife for another generation. Um, the impulse by a lot of groups that are, you know, are environmental groups is to punish, uh, sue, uh, and litigate over getting just the right rules that they think are going to uh, protect wildlife. And a, a lot of that it probably gets under the skin of a lot of private landowners who have nothing against conservation or you know are are out on the land they love this they they enjoy this work and uh you know the work that perk does is trying to find that uh voluntary mutually beneficial exchange that can actually benefit everyone involved including the wildlife including the landscape and so uh it's, I'm always skeptical. It's like, where is this money going to come from to get all these incentives aligned properly? Uh, because it can't just be mandates. So what does that, what does that, what does that look like? Well, and it, and it can't just be legislation either. So one of the things that a lot of, uh, environmental groups want to do is they want to, to, create maps and go get things designated like, oh, well, here's where the wolves move through. Here's where the elk move through. Here's where the bears, grizzly bears move through. And specifically, we're talking we're talking about my backyard in, in Montana. And uh, when I first moved to Montana, I had a, a ranch friend say to me, you know, Brian, in Montana, you can bring a gun to a meeting. You just can't bring a map. Uh, and that's that's the dynamic you're facing with a lot of ranchers out there. And and so you have a lot of these well-meaning conservation groups, environmental groups that want to do something. And the do something is regulate, litigate, legislate, uh, not realizing the impact this has on the rancher who is providing habitat. Uh, I think a, a neat statistic we talk about is that 80 percent of the grasslands in America, 75 percent of the wetlands in America uh, are on private land. Uh, two-thirds of our endangered and threatened species use private land for the majority of their habitat. Uh, 900 million acres in America is ranch and farmland, private. 445 million acres is is private forest land. Uh, this is an extreme amount of habitat that I call invisible conservation. So you have these ranchers out there every day who are providing habitat. They're not taking federal tax dollars necessarily. They're not enrolled in some uh, USDA uh, incentive program. They may not put their land into a protected conservation easement. They're not government controlled. So hence, it's not conservation. It doesn't exist to, to most of the conservation world because there is no designation that we started out with. So PERC gets in there and we figure out what really what helps and works on the ground. And what we find, particularly outside of Yellowstone, so I, the valley I live in, a lot of your listeners, some of your listeners may watch this little show called Yellowstone, starring America's most famous rancher, Kevin Costner. And I live in the valley that the show takes place in. And a lot of the show picks up on grizzly bears and wolves 
uh, elk issue, bison uh, coming through the ranch there. Uh, that's real to those ranchers. Those those elements of the show are real. And when grizzly bears come on your property or elk come on your property, um, I had a ecologist once tell me it's like pig pen from peanuts uh, that comes in with this cloud of bringing everything with you. And what, what does an elk herd bring when they migrate? They do these epic migrations. Huge, incredible distances. Largest land mammal migrations in the lower 48. They rival the Serengeti in, in Africa and some of the migrations there. But like pig pen, they come in and they knock down fences they damage crops. They eat forage designed uh, for for cattle. They bring predator. They bring predators with them. So grizzly bears and wolves will follow these herds because that's what they're predating on. And then, worst of all, outside of Yellowstone National Park, they bring a disease called brucellosis. And brucellosis is a is is only found in bison and elk in the Yellowstone ecosystem, and they can transmit it to cattle. If they transmit this disease brucellosis to cattle, which is sort of nose to nose contact or 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 matter animal matter that a cow might get into. It will cause cattle to abort their fetuses. Now, if you're a cow-calf operation, your job is to have calves born and then sell those for the market. And if your cows are what they call dry and not giving birth because of brucellosis, it can be devastating. And the state will force you into quarantine. So now you got to put your cattle aside, and that can cost a rancher up to $150,000 a year just to set their cattle aside. All right. That sounds like a conflict. That's a conflict. That's the problem. So that's like what we face. And that's where Perk comes in. So Perk comes in and says, well, who wants to see these epic elk migration? You know, who benefits from epic elk migration? We know there's a big tourism industry. You know, tourists love elk. We know conservation groups love elk. We know sportsmen, hunters come in, they fill their freezers every year. So there's a market there. Uh, in Paradise Valley, the additional market is we're very close to Bozeman, Montana. And so development pressures are there. And almost every environmental organization in the area says, well, we don't want these ranchers selling to hotels or to the Four Seasons and, you know, developing Paradise Valley. We want to see Paradise Valley as it is. So Perk comes in and creates the market and says, okay, well, let's go to each of these ranchers and find out what they need to reduce conflict or offset the cost of conflict with this wildlife, because this is not a great experience for them right now. And so we learn different things from ranchers, and then we bring conservation groups to the table with private funding, uh, organizations like the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation will contribute to this, the Greater Yellowstone Coalition, and they'll contribute to these one-off projects that will help these ranchers economically sustain and make their margins and get rid of the risk. So one of the tools that um, that Perk is pioneering, and, and we're going to be in January, uh, we're going live with it, and we have the revenue raised, is something called a brucellosis compensation fund. So I mentioned this risk of disease. We've had our economists come in. They run models on how frequent we have cases of brucellosis, what the cost is for quarantine going to the rancher. And we figured out that, you know, for essentially $125,000, we can cover the risk of brucellosis for three years in Paradise Valley. So we're running a pilot program with some of these other conservation organizations and bringing it to the ranchers for free and saying like, look, we respect, we appreciate what you do for conservation. Here's a market-based tool, private funding, non-government from the interests who want to see elk and elk tolerance that are going to help offset costs. This is, uh, you know, it reminds me of like Peter Bauer or uh, Hernando de Soto, 
you actually get down there and figure out what people value right. and what they need in order. It's like, it's development economics. It is. Well, and it mimics nature. So we like to say nature is very fluid and dynamic. It's not static and geometric, right? So, you know, we think of conservation, we, we build Yellowstone and Yellowstone, if you look at a map as a box, like only we could come in and build a box. Whereas nature, if you look at these migration paths, they're like spaghetti strands thrown up against a map. They're all over the place and they change from year to year. And I think our conservation tools have to be fluid and flexible just like that. I mean, that's the Hernando de Soto thing is you need to get in. There's not going to be a cookie cutter solution for each ranch. You're going to have to do something different for every rancher that's out there to mimic nature at the end of the day. So there's sort of this capitalistic solution is very very much local knowledge like Hayek. I mean, so, this is the no, local knowledge problem. Ri- when, when, when people read Hayek's, you know, knowledge problem paper and try to figure out like, what does this mean in the 21st century? This is what we're talking about. What does this look like at scale? You know, it, to be flexible, to uh, help ranchers accommodate this, these movement, these massive movements of this cherished wildlife what does this look like at scale? You got the pilot project, but right, what, right. what's step four? Well, and and we talk we talk about Paradise Valley being a petri dish of innovation. So, you know that is that is ground zero for conflict, wildlife conflict in the Greater Yellowstone ecosystem, which is three states: that's Montana, Wyoming, and Idaho. So, if we can if we can figure it out in Paradise Valley, that can be exported at least to the Greater Yellowstone ecosystem. But but that said. You know, we have this big movement in corporate America on ESG, and ESG is a three-letter word out there right now. But one of the things that ESG, and, and this is environment, sustainability, governance, there are a lot of corporations in America looking to invest in something that is good for the outdoors, good for nature, good for climate. And we think at the end of the day, there could be something that we we would call like a Yellowstone fund that you could raise $500 million for and use this for projects all around the Rocky Mountain West, if not the West itself. And we could be out there sort of saving the West one market at a time as long as we had the capacity and the patience to listen and to let the solutions be bottom bottom up, not top-down driven. So what is uh, when you approach a, an environmental group and say, here's what we're trying to do, what, what changes? I mean, these are, these are groups that right. might prefer to litigate. Right. And, and I think... So two things. One, it's very unorthodox for them to hear from PERC. PERC traditionally, PERC and a lot of these conservation groups, and we're a 40-year-old organization, haven't haven't always seen eye to eye. But PERC is making a a much more thoughtful, conscientious decision to reach out to these groups uh, in a way to try to partner with them. And I think there's a generational change in the leadership of some of these groups. I think some of these organizations have and the next generation of leaders that see partnership and cooperation might be a better path forward than some of the command and control. So they're willing to try it out. It doesn't mean they're going to uh, abandon those techniques, but if if we can get them trying some of these innovations, it it tends to change their thinking a little bit. And now they get to be allies with ranchers. Like they're actually landowners and and these conservation groups haven't always seen eye to eye, but they're bringing real money and resources to these ranches. And and you see it in these conservation groups. They they enjoy that. They enjoy that much better than going to Washington D.C. I will tell you. There's there's I've had conversations with them. There's reward in having those kind of interactions with ranchers. And so I think this is the wave of the future. We're just at the tip of this, but I, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. We've already seen it in some organizations like the Nature Conservancy and the National Wildlife Federation. 
um, I think you know, uh, Greater Yellowstone Coalition, who we're working with, you're seeing these organizations turn a little bit and be more willing to take slings from the far left for partnering and using these market-based tools, but, they're, but they see what's working and they see what's effective. Brian Yablonski is CEO of the Property and Environment Research Center. We spoke earlier this year. It's that time of year when I ask you to show your support for this podcast and the broad mission of the Cato Institute with a gift. Visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor to get started. And thank you.